शिखर ऑस्कर वाइल्ड सेड बी योर सेल्फ बिकॉज एवरी वन एल्स इज ऑलरेडी टेकन देन वॉट इज द यूज ऑफ मैनर्स आफ्टर ऑल मैनर्स मीन बींग समन एल्स मैनर्स आर नॉट गुड फॉर स्पिरिट वेल क्रिएटिव स्पिरिट I started my career as a salesman. India is a melting pot of wide variety of cultures and traditions. Often the ways of one section of society are crossly opposed to the others. As a salesman wandering across pan-Indian market, I learned one thing. There is no universal benchmark of behavior or style. Eating with fork and spoon may be the suitable way in the restaurant of a top-ranking five-star hotel, but among the tribes of Sundarban, one must eat with bare hands. I remember during my early days, I used to put on a tie all the time while meeting clients. I spoke in good Indian English too. My boss was an Anglo-Indian. His English was fluent and sophisticated. Some of my colleagues came from elite and wealthy background. style and manner of the upper class were their second nature they held the wine glasses in the right way they picked up the fork and spoon by the correct hands they wore perfectly matching shirts and trousers i had trouble with all of it i desperately tried to learn what was right according to the community of people i spent my corporate life with One day while visiting a suburban industrial area of Gujarat I ended up walking through the gate of a small scale engineering company I met the owner of the company a middle-aged man in his late 40s when I was halfway through my sales speech he got up and said I have things to do we cannot use your product I was puzzled I could see catalogs of our competitors stacked on his table but he did not spare a moment more for me and dismissed me flatly i knew something went wrong but i could not place my finger on it it was not the product it was not the company i worked for it was something else during my next visit i was traveling with our channel partner in that area he was a gujarati with very little sophistication in his manners In fact his English was laced with his vernacular so heavily that at times i had to ask him are you speaking english so was his sense of dressing as well of course those days he was struggling to make ends meet he had quit his job half a year ago and was yet to make a breakthrough with a single successful sale he looked clumsy with disheveled hair soiled trousers half tucked shorts sticking to his sweaty skin After traveling in his scooter for almost 80 kilometers, knocking doors of various prospective clients across the territory, I was back to the hotel in the evening. As I was about to bid him goodbye for the day, standing at the courtyard of the hotel, he suddenly suggested that we could drop in at another company. And it was the one whose owner drove me away a few months ago. Eventually that company was located just next to the hotel. I dismissed the idea instantly saying I was too tired for meeting another client. Also I had removed my tie. I did not want to strangle myself again. I looked quite haggard with my acute collarbones jutting out. 
by the way i weighed 45 kilograms those days with each of my bones claiming their existence on their own rights but he had plenty of resolve it was very tough to make him agree i had to agree i went to meet the same crazy owner with our channel partner this time but this time it seemed better right from beginning the man glanced at me for a moment but did not seem to harbor any distaste our channel partner launched his regular pitch in gujarati we were soon invited for a detailed discussion in his chamber we moved across the workshop to enter the chamber there he offered us tea we drank i dared to speak after a while i do not know why but i spoke in hindi not english he did not stop me halfway he listened in rapt attention with due respect finally after an hour or so he told us to get back the following day to close a trial order with us now this whole episode hung like a question mark before my eyes why why did he dismiss me in disdain the previous day and why he entertained me with respect the other day I found the only difference between the two incidences to be my missing tie and Hindi. In fact, my manner was a misfit in his office. His small-scale workshop was a working environment, not the corner cabin of the CEO of a multi-billion dollar corporate. He detested people who came in too much of shiny packages. He doubted their intentions. I realized that manners have no universal codebook. It differs from one sphere to the other. Hence, manners actually make not much sense. Being oneself is important. And in creativity, manners make the walls of prison. Manners draw the boundaries. And true creativity leaves beyond such boundaries. Once in the trap of manners, creativity suffocates to death or breaks the hard shell around it to set itself free in savage ferocity. This is what happened in the period right after the death of Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. These masters set the standard of realism so high that there seemed nothing left to do. Perfection was achieved. There is nothing called more perfect. This is the end of the road. Hence, it became the benchmark of good art. So, manner was set. And the artists who appeared during this period could only live up to the expectations set in the eyes of the beholder. Since Michelangelo and Leonardo earned the prize for their ultimate order of skill and style, the new artists followed the same track to earn their living out of the same because it was a proven route for getting paid by the church. That is why it is named the period of mannerism. In truth, this name was used in a derogatory spirit to indicate that originality was missing. Nothing new was happening during this phase. But this could not go on forever. In the history of science and art, whenever there was a dead end, sudden burst of creativity blasted open a new vista of virgin territory. This happens all the time because people embrace manners to get admission into an elite group occupying higher station in society. As more members join the club, the once elite clique loses its special status and becomes another cliché. 
the need arises for a new level of superiority out of something different hence the church too began to look for something new this soon resulted in a demanding pressure upon the artists to produce something other than what the erstwhile masters did ironically even though mannerist period carries the dullness of monotony in its name the most curious twists and turns took place in this time look at the painting by pamigianino madonna with long neck the painting has another name but history remembers it as that even if it remained unfinished due to the untimely death of the artist at the age of 37 the most curious aspect of the painting never fails to surprise the viewers until this day evidently pamigianino was highly influenced by michelangelo's famous sculpture the pieta though the contexts of the painting and the sculpture are opposed to each other yet it seems pamigianino borrowed the central theme and style from pieta pieta shows the body of the jesus on mary's lap after crucifixion whereas the painting shows the baby jesus in the lap of madonna the similarities in gestures can easily be noted in the bend of neck the hanging hand and the robust leg but the peculiar deviation glares out of the painting when we look at the neck of the madonna the neck is unusually long like a swan we do not know for sure but it is guessed that the artist tried to instill a heightened sense of gracefulness by distorting the neck also the disproportionately small image of saint jerome on the bottom right is a deviation from the convention of the day the focus seems to be at enhancing gracefulness at the cost of convention even if the long neck and a perpendicular composition render the painting hanging between mystery and ridicule yet the desperate urge to do something new without shattering the past is clearly understandable from this example and then we can refer to some paintings by tintoretto in most of them we can see the compromise of stability and smoothness for the sake of dynamism and pace The paintings of Tintoretto imply frenzy of action. They are not focused on composer and grace, but at the high-spirited pulse of the moment. Hence, a world tied up by the shackles of manners do not enjoy stability for long. The stiff protocols begin to suffocate the upholders of the rule book, and cracks begin to appear. After these, let us consider the ultimate example of deviation from the standard practice. The artist we are going to talk about was known simply as the Greek. In history too, he had been recorded as El Greco. This meant the Greek. Though he was Spanish, he never forgot his Greek descent. He signed his paintings in full with complete name, which was Domenico's Theotokopoulos. But thanks to his stay in italy as a pupil of the legendary artist titian he became known as the greek following the tradition where the person often was named by their country of origin leaving aside the subject and context of this painting we can simply note the unique feature of the human form each human form is abnormally elongated and distorted The fine finish of the shades too has been compromised for the spirit of the impression. Interestingly, this was the first untimely flash of things to come in the world of art. 
this flash though captured the fancy of the patrons at the time of the artist yet soon plunged into the darkness of anonymity el greco was ignored soon after he passed away only to make a roaring comeback when another spanish genius classed his paintings as ideals pablo picasso picasso studied el greco deeply and drew inspiration from his art we shall see later how picasso's human figures turned out to be elongated in distortion after picasso became a gigantic figure in the world of art el greco too emerged from the fog of oblivion the untimely flash of modern art was recognized and acknowledged by the artists of a generation 400 years younger than el greco The expectation of something new definitely posed a challenge for the artists of the Mannerist period but there was something much more curious brewing up in the northern countries it is especially Europe. important to describe this development to expound my point that art was driven less by passion but more by the mundane element called money it was 313 CE and Constantine the Roman emperor converted to Christianity It was a watershed in the history of Christianity. Centuries of oppression by the erstwhile dynasties of Rome came to an end. But ironically, the patronage of the Roman Emperor resulted in a perverse change in Christian clergyhood and offices. Soon, the important positions in the church hierarchy were filled up by aristocrats instead of the priests. The bishops were no more the upholders of noble characters and high values. higher stations in the offices of the church became a commodity being traded in exchange of money or favors of various kinds many popes or bishops maintained harem of concubines often they did not either show up for the religious ceremonies at all or when they did they did it drunk of course an undercurrent of reform began to follow but corruption entered every nook and corner of the religious order in christendom this abysmal state of decadence went on for more than a thousand years in fact the church was divided into two categories the church of piety and the church of power the former being managed by the pious priest of high values and ascetic lives whereas the other church was controlled by the monarch as an example of the depravity corrupted people with money often went to the church to buy indulgence the idea was to compensate the need of good deeds or penance to balance the sins by an amount of money if someone did not do the requisite good works before death but committed a lot of sins one was expected to languish in some kind of semi hell after death This indulgence was issued to such people in exchange of money or favor so that the requirement of good deed was waived off. It went on this way for more than a thousand years until the movement against the wholesale corruption gathered massive momentum. It was 15th century and a young priest named Martin Luther revolted against the immoral practices of the church. This drive for reformation ended up changing the whole system so radically that the artists found themselves in trouble. The church was not sure anymore if they should commission more works of frescoes or sculptures. Displaying paintings was not a good idea anymore on the walls of the churches. The artists of northern Europe 
became the victims. The only option for earning their bread was making portraits or book illustrations. And it was not enough for survival. Hence entered the legends like Holbein or Bruegel. Hans Holbein was German but left for Basel, Switzerland at an early age. He made a name for himself as an artist but soon left for England. His wife and kids stayed back in Basel. Finally, in England, through the patronage of an elite, he got a place in the court of the king, Henry VIII. And since then, he produced a large number of legendary portraits of the king's family as well as the other royals. His career faltered at times due to the downfall of some royal or the other, rendering him without a patron. But he filled the void by painting portraits of wealthy merchants in the meantime. Even though irrelevant, I feel like mentioning that the general impression about Holbein as a sad man living most of the time away from his family may not be entirely authentic. Of course, he felt deeply for his family. The portrait of his wife and children shows the shadow of gloomy and unloved lives in his absence, perhaps even poverty and misery. We do not know for sure, but poverty was surely not the cause of torment. Holbein earned very well out of his portraits. He had a house in Vassal where his family lived. The sad faces in the painting were perhaps due to Holbein's long absence away from family, punctuated by only occasional visits. These rare visits were definitely not compulsion but choice. Because art historians discovered that Hans Holbein had a few illegitimate children as well as permanent mistress in England. He did not really live a life of abstinence in the absence of his wife. I mentioned these things because I came across several respectable sources where Holbein's living away from family had been unduly romanticized as the source of his lifelong suffering. We can have a look at a few famous portraits by Holbein. There are just a few examples where we can observe the excellence of the artist as a portrait painter. I shall not discuss the detailed analysis of the portraits. You can find the uniqueness of them in any published document online. My point is about the fact that such a genius painted only portraits. Why? The earlier artists of his stature painted mainly scenes from the Christian religious narratives. But Holman did not. He stuck to portraits of kings, princes and queens. The reason is simple. The cover of the church was tight shut for the artists during this reformation era. Hence, as I said, the artists could only count on the royals and wealthy merchants for portraits and illustration. Such was the case of Holbein too. Once more, it proves that the journey and course of art was not propelled by passion alone. The primary driving force was money. Now we shall explore the peculiarly beautiful paintings by Peter Bruegel the Elder. I suggest that you look his paintings up in the internet. I am sure you will find the pictures captivating and curious with a mysterious aura of humor. But it is not easy to detect the cause of such strange impression the pictures make on the viewer. The question is why he had painted such images and who had paid for them. To understand the backdrop, we need to pick into a bit of history. We know that paper was invented by the Chinese in the ancient times. So was the invention of printing technology on wooden block. 
During some time in the middle of the first millennium AD, the Chinese invented the technique of mass printing. In fact, they published a book named Nung Shu. Supposedly, the book Nung Shu was exported to Europe. The book contained details of several inventions made by the Chinese. Many of such inventions were later attributed to the Europeans. Now, coming back to the point, the first printing machine, though invented in China, yet history recorded the first appearance of printing machine to be in France, the famous Gutenberg Press. It saw the light of the day in 1440. Soon books began to be printed for mass circulation. And when the church reformation movement began, artists lost the commissions of the churches. The market of art was restricted to portraits of the wealthy and illustration of books. So, the paintings by Bruegel was for books to depict proverbs of Netherlands in pictorial form. In fact, Hieronymus Koch, the noted painter, etcher, as well as publisher and distributor of prints, published these books. Bruegel painted for him. To get the charm, we can take a closer look at Bruegel's paintings. If you look carefully, you will find various sections in the painting depicting different popular proverbs pictorially. Apart from these, there was also a very subtle aspect of his artworks that most of the time depicted human follies being carried out mindlessly. Bruegel always tried to capture a wide vista from a height, as if the viewer is getting a bird's eye view of the events down below. Usually, the full hurdy of human down there become obvious at a glance. I believe it was done by Bruegel in that way not only for the advantage of perspective, but to convey a vital message that warms view deprive us from realizing the bigger picture. Being on the stage does not allow the actor to realize if the drama is going well or not. In any case, I have deviated from the main subject. Getting back to the point of the artists creating their artworks fueled by the motivation of money reflects in a particular sketch by Bruegel. It clearly shows that the compulsion to submit to the wealthy buyer is not in good spirit by the artist even if he has no other option. In this sketch, it is obvious that the expression of Bruegel himself that he is not in good humor when the buyer, probably an art speculator, is breathing on his neck to get some commissioned work done. In fact, the buyer's hand in this picture is in his pocket in a gesture of deliberation about how much to pay. This painting or sketch, let's say, is ironic and offers a clear peek into the true spirit of the world of art. Hence here too, during the Mannerist era, my point holds good. Journey of art was curved by the knife of commerce, mm -hmm. not passion. <laughs>